Who noticed what the one word that was different about that version? What's that? Okay. Ebenezer. You won't find that one in our, our, our hymn book. And uh, I think they got away from that because a lot of people just didn't understand what Ebenezer was, but we'll talk a little bit about that this morning. If you would turn in your uh, Bibles to the book of James. James chapter 1. Found on page 1,199. 1,199. Starting at verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich man, the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower, flowers falls, the flower, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will be the rich man so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Some of you might remember earlier this year, we had a potluck in the fellowship room, and immediately after we had a, a hymn sing, and we used the piano in the fellowship room. One thing I didn't know was that that pan- piano hadn't been tuned since 2017. And some of you might have noticed that it was a little out of tune. And when the piano's out of tune, then those singing with it, they also sound a little out of tune. Some of you maybe could hear this. Some of you, maybe your ears couldn't pick, pick up on that. But anyone who plays an instrument knows that you can play all the right notes, all the right chords, but if your instrument is out of tune, 
It's going to sound like nails on a chalkboard, isn't it? Doesn't always sound so good. If you ever if you've ever heard an orchestra play, usually what happens at the very begin beginning before they even start to play, the lead violinist usually plays a note and then everyone plays so that they're all in tune. And and, and by everyone making sure that they're in tune to that one note, you know that when they start playing, it's going to sound melodious. It's, it's going to be in tune because they're all playing together in the right key. Whenever I hear the, the hymn, Come Thou Fount, I have to believe that this is what the author was thinking of when he wrote those words. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Tune thy heart to sing thy grace. The author of the song is praying and asking God to do something for him, and that's to tune his heart. This is actually kind of a good analogy analogy of, of what it's like to live our spiritual lives. Because as we live our lives, we get out of tune, don't we? For whatever reason, maybe because of the things that you have gone through, the trials, the hardships, maybe you're just not spending time with the Lord like you'd like to. Maybe you've allowed your life to become so full of too many other things. It, it, and it just happens. We, our, our hearts get out of tune. And after a while, we, we notice it. I'm sure you've heard the, the, the phrase that something is pulling on your heartstrings. This is kind of the same idea, but we're talking about tuning our hearts. Sometimes as Christians, despite playing all the right notes, doing the right things, doing what we're supposed to do, yet if we're not in tune, we're going to notice it. Other people are going to notice it. Instead of receiving the, the blessings that God has for us, the abundant life, we miss out on it because our hearts are not attuned to him. And when your heart is out of tune, it's hard to live your life in gratitude to the Lord. When your heart is out of tune, you're going to have difficulty seeing God as the, the, the fountain of every blessing in your life. When your heart is out of tune, you're going to find that your worship is half-hearted. And even when you sing praise to the Lord, your heart's not in it. Oh, you sing the words, but are you focusing on what they mean? We can so easily have our hearts get out of tune. When I read the opening words of this song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, I have to think that the author must have had James chapter 1, 17 in mind when he, when he wrote those words. Come thou fount of every blessing. And, and James says, every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now this may seem like a simple verse, kind of straightforward, encouraging, but things aren't always what they seem. And I think if we're going to unlock the meaning of this verse, we, we, we need to do a little digging in this chapter. And that means we've got to go all the way back to the, the first verse. Why did James write this epistle? Why did James write this letter? James tells us. Do you know that 
before I even get to that, that this was one of the earliest letters that was written in the Bible. It comes later in the New Testament, but it was actually one of the earliest letters. It's also amazing when you think about it, James was a half-brother of Jesus. Same mother, different fathers, of course. But James grew up in the same household with Jesus. That must have been amazing to have a brother like that. And it doesn't appear that as James was growing up, even when he, James was a disciple, he doesn't believe there was faith there yet. That came later on. I think it came as a result of the resurrection. They couldn't deny it. But at first, we, 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 we don't see that faith. But when you look at the, James's epistle, when you look at this letter, Right from the very beginning, you, you hear this clear statement of faith. James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. No. I guess what I want, wanted to focus on was um, the way James calls Jesus Lord. He calls Jesus Lord, and he calls Jesus, he, he, in relation to Jesus, he says that I'm his servant. And that says it right there. It puts it in a nutshell, his faith. That something has happened to him. And again, I think it's because of going through the resurrection and being able to see Jesus once again. I think it's interesting, though, the way he starts this letter out. Paul's letters... Very encouraging at the beginning. Usually there's a lot of say hello to this person, say hello to that person. You know, it's, it, it's kind of a, a happy greeting. But what does James immediately focus on in, in, in his letter in James chapter 1? He immediately talks about suffering. And that's what I mentioned a minute ago. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Of all the things to say at the beginning of a letter, why, why does James start there? Well, I think clearly he starts there because that's what the people were facing. That was the reality of their lives, and, and James is trying to encourage them, comfort them, to remind them that while they're going through this persecution and it's not easy, yet God is still in control. He's holding them in the palm of his hands. But still, it's not what you want to hear at the beginning of a letter like this. He's basically saying, dear church, get ready to suffer, to undergo trials, to be persecuted. Treat this as something to be welcomed, to be even joyful about. Who says that? What reason does James give as to why God was allowing this, verse 3, because the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Consider it pure joy because God is working through whatever comes your way, creating in you endurance and perseverance, making you strong so that you can face those trials. God will use all things for our good, the Bible says. All good, all things for our good. He doesn't waste anything, even the bad things that come our way, even the trials, the hardships. 
God will use all things for our good with the goal, James says in verse 4, so that you will grow up and be mature, perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, I don't think James is standing on some ivory tower that, that he's just kind of glossing over, you know, what really the people are experiencing and what they're facing. Remember what James had gone through when he was a disciple. What James went through as an apostle. Think of how the book of Acts begins. Think of the stoning of Stephen. Or later on, think of those apostles that ended up in, in prison and they were flogged and they were beaten. And yet, what did they say afterwards? They rejoiced that they could suffer for the sake of the Lord. And a little bit later, when, when Paul and Silas are, are in prison, what happened in that jail cell that night? Despite being beaten, despite being put in stocks, which are so uncomfortable, they had a worship service. They worshiped the Lord. They were celebrating who God was, and they were celebrating that they were worthy to suffer in Christ's name. This is the context behind James's words in, in verse 17. Now jump back for a moment to verse 12. James says, Blessed is the man or woman who remains steadfast under trial, for when they have stood the test, they will receive the crown of life. Here again, James returns back to that opening motif or that, that opening theme that we see right at the beginning of, of this book. Counting it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. It builds right into that. And he encourages God's people to en endure those hardships, those trials with joy. Because God will give them strength and endurance that God will give them the crown of life. They have nothing to fear. James wants his readers to know that God was using everything in their lives to bring good. Not only in their lives, but in the lives of those around them. But before talking more about that, I think James makes a, an important clarification in verse 13. Just because God is using all these different circumstances, that doesn't mean that God is the author of evil. That evil comes from Him. God's not tempting you to do wrong. No, James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself tempts no one. Rather, each person is tempted when they are lured and enticed by their own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. As James says this, I, I, I can almost see him standing at a crossroads of, of sorts. There, the path divides in front of him. He could either put his trust in the Lord and receive the blessing of God, or he could go his own way. He could allow temptation to rule in his life and, and sin and his sinful desires. It's a choice that we all have to make. Are we going to serve the Lord or are we going to go our own way? Are we going to honor God or are we going to honor ourselves? What's our choice going to be? 
And as we stand at that crossroads, God's not tempting you to go after evil. But he's giving you the opportunity to embrace what is good. To embrace the things of the kingdom of God. Every good gift comes down from the Father of lights. That's everything. That's the good things. It's the sunshine. But it's also the trials. It's the storms. The whirlwinds that we find ourselves in from time to time. God uses all these things for our good. He uses all these things to tune our hearts so that we might be focused on Him and His will. That means we can be grateful for all the things that happen to us, all the things that come our way, the good and the bad, because God will use them Again, for our good. I think we've got to be careful here, though, to, as we talk about this. James is not being morbid here, saying that we should rejoice that we're hurting or that there's death in our families. He's not saying that we should enjoy hitting our thumb with a hammer. That afterwards we can just say, oh, thank you, Jesus, thank you that I got to hit my thumb and experience this pain. No, he's not saying that, and he's not saying that about life. But what he is saying is that God is so powerful and so big and so mighty that even as these trials come our way, and you can imagine them as being like these these missiles from above, these bombs, yet at the same time he's sending these good gifts along with them, and, and, and he changes the flavor of what could be devastating and, and totally tear us down into something that can build us up and, and to be good. Our God loves us. He's the Father of the heavenly lights, James says. That's kind of an interesting phrase. You ever go outside on a summer night and see the stars, the galaxies, the shooting stars, sometimes even the, the northern lights. It's, it's amazing. I mean, it, and the longer you're out there, the more your eyes adjust and you see more and more and more and it's just beautiful. God, the Father of the heavenly lights, you know, people back then and even today, they, they, they look to the stars and the planets as thinking they have somehow have their own power that if we do things according to the signs, astrology, that somehow it'll be good for us. Who created those things? God did. Why would we want to turn to those things when we have the one who created the heavenly lights? The Father of lights. And while those stars and those planets, you know, they can collapse on themselves and they can burn out and all kinds of things can happen. They flicker, they fade. Even our sun eventually will wear itself out. But we don't have to worry about that. But that's not true for God. He's the Father of the heavenly lights. He doesn't burn out. He doesn't change. 
But he's always the same, always powerful, always good, always loving. And he has our best in mind. They say it took thousands of years, some say even longer, for the light of stars to actually get to us. It's amazing when you think about it. Our God created all that. He created that light. He created that glimpse that we see even at night. And this is the one who holds us in the palm of his hands, who's watching over us, who's placing his hands of love upon us. You know, back then, just like today, people believe the stars and the planets, they, they have that influence on us, and we have to stand up as, as God's people and say, only God has that power. Only God has that control. Only God holds us and cares for us. And we need to deny those falsehoods. We need to proclaim the truth. Verse 18, James adds this important piece to the puzzle. He says, if you're still not convinced that God is good and worth trusting, then remember, of his own will, he chose and brought you forth by the word of truth. The word of truth. Think of Jesus. The word that came. That used to be a kind of first fruits of his creation. You only need to look at the cross if you find yourself doubting God's goodness, God's love. Because there at the cross, we see his love. We see just how much he cares about us. This is why we can trust in him. This is the good news that our passage proclaims. This is the good news of that song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Prone to wander, Lord, prone to leave the God I love. Boy, he nails it right on the head. That's what we all are tempted to do. Leave the one we love. We know where we need to focus our eyes, but it's so easy to get sidetracked and go after the things of this world. And when we do that, then it's hard to focus on God. Our hearts become out of tune. Only Jesus can tune our hearts. Only Jesus can restore our Only Jesus can restore our, our that first love in our hearts and, and draw us back to himself. You know, this had to have been comforting for the author of Come Thou Found who wrote this. Had to have been comforting for him. You know, when he was eight years old, his father died. And his life went downhill after that. He was devastated by this. And, and so as a teenager, he was rebellious. He drank. He did all the things that our kids shouldn't. When he was around 20, his mom sent him away thinking that would help. That only made things worse. One day, though, he decided to go to a revival. He didn't go there because he wanted to hear anybody. He went with his friends to make fun of the speaker, the preacher, who was speaking that night. But what he didn't know was that the speaker in the, in the church was George Whitfield. 
And God touched this man's heart. And that night, he went from death unto life. He turned his life around. And soon after this, he felt called to the ministry. He even started writing hymns. I wish I could say his life was perfect, but it wasn't. He continued to wander. He continued to struggle, just like we continue to wander and struggle. But when we look back, just like this hymn writer, we can see the goodness of the Lord even through those trials. God is faithful and loves his children, and he gives us good gifts. The Father of lights, who fills his children's laps with such good gifts. I think that's why the author of our hymn uses an interesting word in the second stanza of the song, which I mentioned already. He says, I raise, here I raise my Ebenezer. Again, because people aren't familiar with that word, we don't use that anymore, but I think it's still a, a powerful word when you understand the meaning. What is an Ebenezer? Actually, it's found in 1 Samuel 7. Samuel gathered the people at the town of Mizpah to fast and confess their sins to God. And as they were confessing their sins to the Lord, the, the Philistines, they heard about it, heard that they weren't ready for battle, that they were spending this time with the Lord. And so they chose that moment to attack. And so you can just imagine the panic in the people as they're worshiping God as they're confessing their sins when suddenly here comes the Philistines. And so they plead with Samuel to pray on our behalf before the Lord. And that's what Samuel did. And as he, he killed the, the, the lamb and sacrificed it to the Lord, at that moment God acted. And with such a loud noise and voice, he, he, he scared the bejeebies out of the Philistines. And they turned on each other. And it was an amazing victory that Israel had that day. God heard Samuel's prayer. He thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated. What did Samuel do immediately after that? He built the stone monument whether it was a couple stones, one stone, many stones, it, it really doesn't matter. But it was a monument to remind the people from then on of what God had done, of, of his faithfulness, of his love. That God came to the rescue. In the Hebrew, the word Ebenezer means stone of help or remembrance, which is found in 1 Samuel seven twelve. Samuel didn't want the people to forget. And while it would be easier for them to remember, but the following generation, it would be easy for them to forget. And the generation after that, it would really be easy for them to forget. And that monument was a reminder, a constant reminder, every time they walked by it, that God was faithful, that they didn't have to fear, that God would provide for all their needs. So it is with us today. Your story, it's not over. You're going to continue to face threats and dangers and persecutions as you run your race.
That's what each of us have to look forward to. But you don't need to fear because God is our Ebenezer. He's our help and strength. And when going through those difficult times, that's why it's important to be able to look back at other Ebenezers that you've set up. Monuments, stones, not literal stones, but things that you can look back to where you say, God showed up. God answered my prayer. God was there. He, he, he did an amazing thing. He answered it in a way that I never, I, I couldn't have even imagined, but he answered it. God is so wise. God is so good. God is so loving. And when we have that kind of faith in God, we don't have to be afraid, no matter what comes our way. Whether it's the Flistons, or whether it's some other trial in your life. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights. That means the sunshine, that means the storms. Times of victory, times when our lives aren't so good. God is there, and God will use all things for our good if we will just but trust in him. And we'll remember who's holding us in the palm of his hands. God says, I'm demonstrating my power in your life. So look around. I'm putting some good 